Alright, well, I'm waiting for Eric. Waiting for Eric. Um, hello, Brian. Oh, uh, hey, Alan. Uh, didn't expect you to show up. Yeah, I know. I tend to haunt the Nerds on Film podcast quite a bit, but I decided, you know what? I'm going to do Nerds on History this week. Uh, that's, that's great. Would we by chance be talking about the history of gastropubs this week? Um, no. No, we're not. Hmm, well, perhaps we'll be discussing the history of the short-brimmed fedora? Nope. Well, um, what are we going to be talking about? Funny you should ask. Hi, nerds. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. Uh, my co-host, Eric Brickmont, is not going to be with us this week. And actually, um, I want to take a second to talk about that. Eric is fine. Uh, he's been on break for a couple of weeks. But uh, unfortunately, we were struck for some bad news yesterday. Uh, we had a whole plan for the episode this week. We were going to do a really cool two-parter for our upcoming 100th episode. But um, Unfortunately, Eric's wife's um, had some family that were that were killed in an automobile accident in um, in Mexico, and surely everyone in Neuronomy knows, and our hearts and our prayers go out to him during this very difficult time. And uh, the family has taken the news very very hard. So what I offered to do instead was just to come in and do some house cleaning, and offered a cool kind of proposal. Uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to go into some listener feedback and then we'll actually do something kind of cool. So here we go. Let's get on with some listener feedback. This week in listener feedback. We do have one piece of listener feedback from James who emailed us. Uh, subject Ewoks in Italy. His message reads, Holy Rasputin, my f- nerd friends, love the WW Uno episode. Tragically, as an American public school kid, I did not receive nearly enough information about the war to end all wars during my childhood. Not that mind trenches and inconsequential archdukes were an unsuitable replacement for teddy bears and sugar-coated dreams. Very funny. I had no idea of the brutality and incredibly terrible conditions of the war. Really made the narrative real for me. Well, thank you. We appreciate that a lot. He continues. Okay, so just a thought. Did he really drown or change to an E and an I and drop some RAS and become the Imperator of the Red for all recent history? Just food for thought. Interesting. Not quite sure what um, what you're trying to say there. But anyway, he continues. I really love you guys and what you do. Because of Neuronomy, I've started buying comics again, revisited my history books, and even started combing through my video library to separate my cult classics from the horrible late-night Walmart decisions. <laughs> Thanks for waving the nerd flag with pride. Peace, love, and nananu, James. James, thank you for that. We really love it when we get to inspire our listeners to embrace their nerdiness. So, We also got some feedback on our Facebook page from Gene, who wrote, Nice uh, World War One trilogy, although to describe the start of the war, I always hear the doctor. In June 1914, an Archduke of Austria was shot by a Serbian, and this then led through nations having treaties with nations like a line of dominoes falling to some boys from England walking together in France on a terrible day. Uh, She's referring to the Family of Blood episode of Doctor Who. Uh, Thank you, Gene. Awesome. And there you have it, guys. Thank you, as always, for your feedback. If you want to keep giving us feedback, you can go to nerdonomy.com 
and click on the uh, give us feedback button from the navigation bar at the top. You can also, of course, continue to support us through our uh, audible.com affiliation that you can see on the right side of the page. And you can click on the donate button at the top and give us a little bit of money. You can give us $1, you can give us $10, however much you can. can. You can also do, as one of our listeners has done recently, you can also choose to um, pledge a monthly amount to us. We've got eight bucks coming to us uh, every month thanks to this one listener. So thank you very much for that. So now let's get on to the topic as it were. We thought that since we're getting into the 100th episode, usually some shows, when they get close to their 100th episode, they go back and they they look back at what they've done the first 100 episodes. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool. Are we going to do a clip show? Mm, no, not really. What we thought it'd be fun to do is to go back to our very first episode and listen to it and maybe even do some tweaking on it. So uh, that's also the, for those who are playing the home game, that is also the only episode that Sean has never edited. Uh, yes, I've stepped in for editing time to time, but Sean was brought on as an editor for episode two going forward. So that's the only one of Nerds in History where I actually edited completely on my own. But today we're going to have him take a stab at it and see if we get something out of it that maybe you didn't get the chance to see before. So we hope you enjoy it and tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel for our one hundredth episode so without further ado i give you guys our first episode redone the mongoose equation enjoy check check sound check check one check check one hey eric did you know that the first crusade was the only crusade that was actually successful for the christians yeah you know that that doesn't really surprise me it's uh the sequels are always much worse than the first one yeah i agree i think the first one's always the best i think it was really after the fifth crusade that the Christians went, no, I think we need a reboot. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. And together we will be going on an interesting journey weekly uh, into the world of history, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is something that we've been talking about for a little while now. And, you know, I, I figured that we, we both have a pretty good collective knowledge. We both got an interest in it. There's not a whole lot of it out there in terms of the, the podcast universe, if you will. And so uh, why, don't we, why don't we chat about stuff relating to ancient history? Yeah, yeah. I think before history. we do that, though, it's important to know our backgrounds a little bit. Um, I am definitely not a history buff. I watch the History Channel. That's uh, good. That's a start. <laughs> that's, that's a big start. Uh, but I don't I, – I would not say I was read on history. I didn't like history growing Growing up, it was it was the one class that everybody kind of hated a little bit because it was boring. It was all about dates and times, and history obviously is so much more than that. Um, it's about what happened at a certain point that changed things, you know. Uh, kind of where we are today now because of it. Exactly. And but I think it's really important for the world to know. Well, what's your background with, uh, with history? So, unlike you, then. I'd say it's probably the opposite. I was raised on history. My father's an archaeologist. And from my earliest memories, uh, I've been absolutely just exposed to all history that there was. Everything. Uh, I specialize in ancient Egypt. That's where my passion is. That's my love. That's what I do. Uh, I spent several years in the museum industry, uh, working in nonprofits and working with all sorts of great educational institutions. And... 
I have not just one particular interest, though. I mean, everything about history just fascinates me. Right. And so, you know, I guess uh, if I had to describe myself, I called myself an Egyptophile. I don't actually have a degree in Egyptology at this time. Letting the wife go to school while I hold down uh, hold down a job and bring home the bacon. And that's fine. I have plenty of time. Uh, my father said you don't need to have a degree to be an expert in something. Uh, you can be a historian at any point in your life. And I've always taken those words to heart because life gets busy. And, yeah, no you know, it's it's hard to, to, to find the time to finish off things and go to school and get degrees and all that. Right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You said you've read, was it like 300 books on history? I, I'd say I have probably about 300 books in my collection. I'm not going to say I read them all. I'm going to be honest. Okay. I, I'd say that when I go to the recycle bookstore and I pick up, you know, seven or eight books, I'm not reading every one of them. I'm probably reading about half of them. So I'm going to say I probably made it about about 60% through my collection. So, so to clarify, you've read sections of 300 books on Fair enough. History. Yes. I'd say, you know, I get kind of picky, but um, okay. I, I definitely read through them all if I can. And I will just, you know, takes a little time. Yeah. You never have enough time to read all your books. And that's OK. You don't want to read all your books. You want to have a, you want to have something left over. You want to have sure. something to, 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 ooh, you know, God, I, I, I've been meaning to read that for two years. It's time to finally do it. It's kind of like a wine. Yeah. You know, it ages and it appreciates with uh, with time. Sure. And you want to savor it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. You know, I think. We were talking about the movie Prometheus, and right. no, we won't we won't go into the merits of that film because that's another podcast. Yeah, let's not. Let's not yeah. do that. Um, and plus, you haven't seen it, right? I'm and the then you would ruin it for us. me, and then I'd be yeah. very upset. And we would just exactly, end the and show I don't right want because yeah. you're you're a huge fan of the alien films, and I'm not. Right. So I went into there terrified because those those creatures just scared living piss out of me. <laughs> um, they they just and it goes way back. the The world doesn't need to know about that, but now they're curious. I'm sure that, um, that'll be for an, another podcast when we do the history of Brian's nightmares. Exactly. So, but there was there was. Something that caught your attention, that, that yes, kind of perplexed you, and you had a question for me. Something did catch my attention here. And this goes into your expertise, I believe, because in the film, they are on this alien planet, LV, one of the 200s, I can't two, remember. 216 two, two, or something two, two, like three, that. 223, I think, yeah, is what it is in yeah, this film. Yeah, something like that. Um, and they come across this mound, which to me looks like a very weak sauce uh, beehive. It's like a half-dome beehive. Um, and about, like... Two-thirds to three-quarters away through the film, Idris Elba's character refers to it as a pyramid. And I was like, that doesn't look like anything like a pyramid that I know of. But according to you, this does qualify as a pyramid. And I'm yeah. curious, like, and the, basically what it is, is it's a, it's a catacomb that they go into right. that you find out is something else that's really not what that is. But it's like this above-ground entryway. Yeah. I mean, people have a, a very um, stereotypical view of what a pyramid is. If you look at a geometric you know, pyramid, right? In the strictest of terms, yeah. it's four sides that meet at a singular point at the top of the structure, right? Pretty okay. simple. And if you look at the evolution of pyramid architecture, though, yes, we do get to that point in history, at least in, in ancient Egypt we do, but there is so much more in terms of its development, where it got its startings from, and all the different styles of pyramids that there are. And they're not just pyramids in Egypt. People, that's, again, the stereotypical view that we people have of pyramids. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me there are other places in the world that have pyramids? Like, I thought it was just, like, Egypt and South America. 
And that's what most people think of because those are the biggest. Those are the most impressive. Those are the ones that, you know, tourists flock to in the hundreds and, and you know, take ridiculous pictures of on top of camels or donkeys in front of. But... <laughs> Um, it's a the, lovely image. A little bit, yeah. Uh, the reality of it is, though, that there are pyramids around the world all throughout different time periods in Egypt, or, <laughs> Egyptian history, all history. And to be honest, most of them you would walk right by and not even really assume is a pyramid at all. And to kind of get back to the point that you were making in the movie, like how can they describe this this kind of rounded uh, object as a, as a pyramid? Well, that's kind of where they evolved from, is from burial mounds. And so let's let's start in Egypt. Uh, let's go back uh, about 3000 BCE, okay. and that's kind of the the focal point where you're going to have uh, that that first development of of pyramid architecture. And are you are you referring to those the, the step pyramid that exists? This is even before that. Pre okay, so this is pre. This is the okay. the origins of all pyramid architecture uh, date back to Egypt and also almost concurrently. In nearby Ur, so which in ancient, is Mesopotamia for those which is Mesopotamia. who uh, do not know, which means the land between two rivers, which land is located rivers, yes. in the in the um, what is now modern day Iraq. Yes, the the, the hometown of Abraham. Yeah, remember, for okay. those who know the Bible very well, which I don't. But that's a whole nother yeah, podcast. See, that's a little bit more my area. Yeah, we'll, I was, we'll jump back. And forth. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So continue, um, please. Okay, so you have these two different cultures that are pretty close to one another. They have trade routes established very early in their histories. They're probably passing ideas back and forth with each other uh, as well, and they're both developing kind of this this concept around the burial mound. And essentially, it's a it's a large pile of earth that covers the deceased. And this is not just a a marker an identifier. This is um, at least in ancient Egypt a reflection of their mythology. Because we have a myth that must have started very early in their history and, and carried over and developed later, which tells us about the whole creation of the universe, uh, in which at the beginning of all time, there's just nothingness. There's this, uh, what's described as, a, as an ocean, and it's called noon. And there's no light, there's no nothing, it's just this chaotic ocean. And from that rises a mound of earth. And from this mound of earth blossoms a lotus flower. And the lotus, which if you've ever seen the inside of one, looks like there's a small disc on the inside that's yellow, obviously was symbolic of the sun. And so in the mythology, this, this flower blossoms, gives birth to the sun, casts light across all of this nothingness, and the whole rest of the universe kind of rises out of all of it. The only thing left behind is the Nile, right, which is the main river that runs through Egypt. It's the longest river in the world. Uh, and it's what allowed the ancient Egyptians to survive out out in the desert. So obviously it was pretty important, and they incorporated it into this myth. Yeah. So there you go. The whole universe is born out of one of these mounds. And in ancient Egypt, the hope was that the deceased, uh, in this case, many of the earliest burial mounds focused around wealthy individuals and, of course, the, the earliest uh, rulers of Egypt, their soul, just like the universe was reborn, their soul was going to be reborn too. So if you look at Mesopotamia... You have pyramids that are kind of developing a little bit differently. The ziggurat, which is what eventually ended up developing in that part of the world, which is a more tiered structure with steps leading up to a kind of a focal right. point. It's almost like there's levels. There's like levels that kind of like it goes up a little bit, then it, then it plateaus, and then it goes up a little bit more, and it plateaus. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different variation in it, but the, the general shape is that. Okay. And the whole concept and idea surrounding those is more a place of worship. Right. So those were temples. Right. That was their connection to... 
to the gods. Yeah, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, what I do remember from my civics class in college uh, was that the higher you were altitude wise, the closer they felt you were to the heavens. Exactly, like, and there were different like, different tiers with different uh, permissions allowed for certain individuals to go up. So you had to be higher up in that religious sect to be, to be able to move up higher into the into the ziggurat. Uh, at least at a, all different periods, and there were different cultures within Mesopotamia that had different concepts and ideas, but they mostly centered around it being a, a place of worship. Whereas the Egyptian pyramids are centered around uh, a place of burial and a place of rebirth and regeneration. So if you look at those two basic concepts, those also kind of are reflected all around the world in other different types of, of pyramids. And if you go into Mesoamerica, which is where the other more typical, more recognizable pyramids are found, uh, you have something emulating more like the, the ziggurats of Mesopotamia. So those are going to be more associated with the temple aspect of it all. But um, interesting little factoid, which I'm sure we'll have plenty of these uh, throughout the show today. The Pyramid of Titoacan, the Pyramid of the Sun, which is the largest pyramid in Mesoamerica, was... And this is in Mexico, correct? This is in Mexico. Okay. This is just outside of Mexico City. I was actually there only six months ago, and it was it was fantastic. It was such an amazing sight. I got to climb all the way up to the very top right. uh, and look down and see the entire complex, and it just it blew my mind. I had to go back twice, and I wasn't there for very long. I mean, I was only there for a week, yeah. but I dedicated two of my days to going there because it was, it was one, a uh, lifetime dream, and sure. two, uh, a chance to see actual, you know, this actual architecture in person, which is just mind-boggling. Anyway... It originally was constructed by a, a, a culture and civilization that is very little is known about. We don't know a whole lot about them. We know they inhabited that area for a short time. We know that they, they hadn't, you know, obviously the, the technical knowledge to put together a large building project like this. Uh, but their civilization either kind of evacuated the area and then died out or was assimilated into other cultures in the surrounding area. Um, but the original pyramid that was there was much more mound-shaped than it is right now. It wasn't until the Aztecs then inhabited that valley and took over the site that they created it to its current height, where they actually added on to it and built onto it more. So mm. if you're looking at it from the, from the, the viewpoint of it as a, as a mound, the, the pyramids of Mesoamerica are actually much more mound-shaped and much more mound-like than, uh, than they appear now. That's mm. kind of how they started out. So this mound is, is really prominent. You said at one point in one of our many conversations, uh, for those who don't know, Eric and I are co-workers. That's how we got into these conversations. You had said that there are even European pyramids or something that's very close to that. Well, then we come back to the, the, the concepts surrounding the mounds, right? Okay. If you look throughout Western Europe, you're going to find uh, burial mounds again in that area of the world as well. Yeah. Uh, and those go back, you know, pretty, pretty far distance, back even before, you know, pre-Roman times. And so you obviously have this kind of universal concept and idea that is being floated around and passed around all around the place. Some people don't like that idea. Some people like to think that uh, you have to have a, a center or a central point for this, this concept and idea to then spread and, and pass out and around the world. Uh, I'm more in the favor of kind of cross-cultural parallel development in that you know we are, as a people, so inherently similar to one another, certain concepts and ideas are going to be familiar to us whether our civilizations and cultures ever had direct contact with us before that point. And I, I feel like there's enough evidence to suggest that that also has an influence over uh, burial architecture. Yeah. It raises a lot of interesting questions. It really does, because when you see the stark similarities between the pyramids, like you said, of 
Mesoamerica and the ziggurats that you see in the Middle East, there is, like, you look at those and you think those almost look identical. I mean, obviously there is there are differences when you look at them closer, but um, there is, you're, you're referring to the theory that um, because South America's right coast um, fits into the left coast, because we're putting directions off, uh, I, I'm not pretending like I know anything about navigation, um, they fit into one another, or at least they did at one point when we were all one supercontinent. And this is what you're referring to, right? Well, that's, I mean, um, okay, so there was a uh, an experimental archaeologist, very mm-hmm. famous. His name was Thor uh, Heyerdahl. Wait, and his name was Thor? Thor. I As know. in like the superhero? It is probably God. one of the coolest names in, in, in recent archaeological record. That's a, ta- uh, <laughs> this is a tangent, but like, like if your name is Thor... I'm immediately going to be intimidated <laughs> by you. You could be the nicest guy in the world, but hi, this is my friend Thor. So yeah, he he was a little intimidating looking, uh, but he was you know he was uh, a serious scientist. He was just had ideas that to me, I mean, okay. So I have a saying: everything has a level of probability. Okay, whether or not that's actually going to happen is, de- is determined by that. Anything is possible, in my opinion. I believe that it's possible that my iPad can turn into a mongoose. I know. I believe that there there might very well be the the key and formula out there in the universe to rearrange the molecules in my iPad and turn it into a a living breathing mammal. Now, the probability of that happening is so very small it is considered to be impossible. It's absolutely absurd to think of such a thing. But we don't know everything in the universe. We don't know how everything works. How are we to say 100% that that couldn't happen? So, you, in other words, if there was a mongoose equation, you would know, in theory, someone could convert said iPad into said mammal. Or said anything into said yeah. mammal. I mean, yeah. it could be it could be the, um, the, the strangest thing to happen in the universe. I mean, who, you know, it's possible. It's possible it could happen. Get the scientists working on the mongoose equation. Let's do this, people. If we get enough money, we'll get on Kickstarter. And we'll get some some uh, theoretical physicists, and we'll see if we can get the right. mongoose equation figured out by the end of the year. Now, how does this law of probability tie into what you're talking about? Okay, so theory? essentially, essentially Thor's theory was, and he he tried to prove this, and he did so, you know, successfully, that you could build a a papyrus reed boat, not unlike the ones that the Egyptians themselves would have used, mostly for river travel, but could have been made seafaring, okay. uh, and then actually sail that from the west coast of Africa, from Morocco, over to South America. And he succeeded in doing so. Twice. He had two expeditions. Now, how uh, big were these rafts? You know, I don't know the exact length of the boats, but they they, were, they weren't terribly large, but they were enough for him and, and a few other colleagues to to have provisionings and themselves and be able to to make it across, um, you know, successfully. Okay. The, the trick was to be able to find the particular currents uh, where they were meeting and and not causing too much disturbance or or choppiness or or bad weather and be able to kind of sail in this kind of clear path from one continent to the other, uh, and he did it. He did it successfully. Does that mean that the ancient Egyptians did it? Did that mean that the ancient Egyptians influenced pyramid building in Mesoamerica? In my opinion, no. I think that there's enough evidence to suggest that they developed the technique on their own. Um, is it possible that they could have done it? Yeah, I have to acknowledge the possibility of it. Unlike the one chance that like they were able to get to, because you said there was like a there's one like yeah, current. there's this narrow little corridor that right. you can sail right along, and if you know right where that is, and you are very fortunate, very very lucky, you can make it there. On the off chance the Egyptians did that, like guided by the hand of Osiris or something, something like sure that. Yeah, exactly. That they would get to 
Uh, I did get the right god, right? Osiris is kind of the big, the big wig. Well, it's, it's, it's it was, raw. It was pretty I know it's raw, but Osiris is a big, is a big dude. I think mm-hmm. Osiris ultimately was far more influential and important than Ra, but okay, that, that's then, a whole nother yeah, podcast. That, and then and that's a tangent. I know totally. Right. I go, I do that, but. Um, okay, so you're you're thinking just, it was more just coincidence then that these I think it's I think it's more here. than just coincidence. I feel like inherently we have so many things in common with one another, despite being geographically isolated from one another, despite being isolated by large periods of time from one another. That there are there are certain things that we just all have in common, and when it comes to ceremonial burial, that is something that we see again and again and again throughout the fossil record and throughout you know history. Is that we were even though we're separated, we're still performing ceremonies around the burial of individuals in really similar ways, right? And it can almost be said that that can date as far back as when we were one continent before we started to disperse across the the idea of burying our dead. Because I think, if I remember correctly, now I could be wrong. He's giving me a, <laughs> a, a, a an almost admonishing look, like "What the hell are you doing? You think you know what you're talking about?" And I and I really don't. I just I, I sound smart when I talk, but um. <laughs> <laughs> I really no, it's air inside my skull mostly. But I was taking an anthropology class a couple years ago and I remember him saying one of the pre I think I remember him saying saying one of the earlier human species because we're not the only human species that's existed. There, there are multiple hominids, we are just one of them. You hear that? Yeah, that, I that just was dropped some of, knowledge yeah. on you. <laughs> that was that was good. I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Move me. Um, two inches to the left, it was impressive. Right. I think there was some point very pre-history where we could see some signs of of human beings burying other human beings. Well, I mean, okay. In terms of continental drift, separating human beings, that's just, you know, at least Homo sapiens, that's not going to be the case. Our earliest hominid that we can kind of connect to is about 7 million years ago in Africa. Uh, and we don't see any examples of that developing elsewhere. There are some people that suggest that there are other hominids that developed at other times in other parts of the world independently, kind of on their own. Right. But continental drift? Yeah. It, it, that's just, kind of a passage. That, that was way point. earlier. That was okay. way earlier. The okay. dinosaurs, however, now that that's that's where you get into paleontology, right? And you get into the fact that when, you know, continents were much closer to each other 165 million years ago, yeah, absolutely. You you see, you know, the same dinosaur on one continent compared to the other and they were probably at one point living you know in the same same environment but uh in terms of human evolution and and human dispersal you don't really see that you see modern human beings okay so homo sapiens kind of moving out of africa and then following all sorts of different paths uh and that was about i believe about seventy thousand years ago so not not quite the same in, in terms of overall time what to me is most interesting about the pyramids of Mesoamerica is there's also pyramids right here in our own backyard in North America that people don't even really think about. And that's the pyramids that the North Americans, uh, North American Indians were building. And that's when we get right back to burial mounds because this concept and idea around the mound, we see it going back into the Americas, you know, thousands of years ago. And throughout all of Egyptian history, North American Indians were building burial mounds in in the eastern United States. Now, would these be found? So you said the east. Okay, well, you just yeah, said it right eastern there. United States, straight down to Mississippi. Okay, uh, that's where the majority of this is is kind of centered. Okay. Um, the trick with burial mounds are that they are easily overgrown, that oh. they are they are designed out of earth, and as such, can disappear into a landscape really really quickly. 
Uh, it might be easily been mistaken for like a small hill. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And there could very well be a, you know, somebody having their home on top of one right now and not even knowing it. Wow. You know, and this idea Someone's and concept obviously was developed here in in North America by the North American Indians. Why couldn't it have been passed down further south into Mesoamerica? Right. I think it's far more likely. And absolutely, there are examples where there are cultures who are sharing concepts and ideas because they're next door neighbors. Right. And this right. also comes back to pyramids too, right? Because remember when we're talking about the beginning of the show, both ziggurats and pyramids were developing in Egypt at pretty much at the exact same time. Right around the time that the trade routes were established between these two cultures on a much more consistent basis. So yeah, there's all kinds of evidence to suggest that they were encouraging each other's development. And then another perfect example, again, tying back into Egypt, are the pyramids in the Sudan, in ancient Nubia. So in the 25th dynasty, the Egyptian state was fractured. It was actually divided up between two separate rulers, both calling themselves pharaohs. The Nubians then took this as an opportunity to go ahead and invade up further north into Egypt, whereas traditionally it kind of been the other way around. The Egyptians were kind of the, the powerhouse of the ancient world, and for a lot of that time they were taking advantage of their neighbors, including the Nubians, so they were invading further south. Now it was the Nubians' chance to kind of kick back up a little bit forward. And they ended up actually taking over the entire country and declaring themselves pharaohs and ruling uh, for several generations in this little time period in the 25th dynasty. Really interesting little period. And 25th dynasty is around what time as far as the timeline for uh, human history? Uh, let me think here. Uh, it's going to be somewhere around like 600 BCE. Okay, so... Right, right around that. I don't, I don't have an exact date off the top okay. of my head. But it's about 600 BCE. And so the pyramid concept and idea was observed, obviously, by the Nubians. They had had long-existing trade routes with the Egyptians. And so the Nubians started building their own pyramids. Uh, and it was a practice that only went on for a couple hundred years, and they're considerably smaller than the ancient Egyptian ones, uh, many of which were made out of mud brick, which was you know easily destroyed over time or you know wiped out by... You know, just the, the regular kind of uh, weather patterns and all that stuff that takes its time on it, right? So erosion kind of fades them away. But uh, here's a perfect example of one culture influencing another. And it was easy, relatively, right? Because they're back, you know, next door neighbors. It was easier to do that. It's a much bigger stretch to say that the ancient Egyptians, who were not good maritime sailors, by the way, they absolutely hated the ocean. They wanted very little to do with it if they could. They were much more comfortable with the river, and that's where they stayed for the vast majority of their time. Um, would then go ahead and put together a ship and decide that they were going to go all the way out as far away as possible <laughs> to a whole nother continent and suggest that they were actually going to be able to influence the, the people in that area. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Okay. That, that's my opinion on it. I, I, you know, I, I agree that, yeah, okay, Thor was able to do it. Cool. Yeah. The ancient Egyptians didn't have the benefit of a rescue boat being 20 feet off of them the entire time just to make sure nothing went wrong, which I'm sure if they had ever attempted it, it probably would have. Right, um, right. And even if they had made it over into that time, you know, the Olmecs were the very first people to start building pyramids in Mesoamerica. They were doing that at a time when Egypt was in a serious decline. I feel it's very unlikely. They weren't even building pyramids in Egypt at that time. Now... Is your opinion shared by a lot of people in the academic circles? Uh, is this kind of like the current consensus of what we think 
happen with pyramid development or is it are there like two different differing schools of thought basically with this I, I think the, the the predominant one is the view that I share as well in that there is no direct evidence to suggest that the ancient Egyptians had a direct connection with with Mesoamerica yeah please excuse us if you hear his background noises we are surrounded by uh, technology uh, things buzzing and going off and chiming all, all left yeah, and right. Yeah, so we don't, we're not sure what you hear and what you can't hear. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and is that even me or what, what's going on? Where is exactly. the sound being generated? Yeah, from? yeah. Uh, we kind of uh, live in a, in a state of perpetual paranoia now of our devices. <laughs> we're never sure what's happening. Is that you? Was that you? No, no, no. That was me. That was me. No. It's like that phantom oh, butt oh, vibration. Oh, it was me. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I've heard of that before. It's like a serious medical condition. People. Yeah, I think people, I have it actually. <laughs> <laughs> is your yeah. sleep disrupted because you think that your your phone's vibrating when it's across the room and not no, actually strapped not to your all. leg? My, I sleep like the dead. Well, that's um, good. Yeah. Which is horrible. Like, I've had people call me with emergencies in the middle of the night and I don't get it until the next day because I just... I'm so also because I sleep with my phone on silent, but that's well, but, yeah. I, but I can't even hear the buzzing, uh, right? Which yeah, I'm a heavy sleeper too. I sleep through earthquakes and you name it. Yeah, exactly. We would not survive if there was a major catastrophe. Probably not in the middle okay. of the night. In the middle of the night, right? <laughs> yeah. During the day would be just fine. Yeah. Um. So, well, this is a really fascinating subject, especially when you bring up the the North American pyramid concept, because we don't think about that at all. What we think. Of North American or the Native Americans from North America, we think of you know the very stereotypical teepee, like cone-shaped sure. tent, and obviously that's not that. The Iroquois, of course, had cabins that they would do, and um, the the uh, the Pueblo people in the Southwest had kivas that were made out of adobe. Yeah, so exactly. It, not we, unlike the ancient Egyptians who made a lot of their you know constructs out of mud brick. Right. So like there's um, there's obviously a lot of variation in there. So the burial mounds that you're referring to from North America, were they pretty much the same everywhere? Or did, did it just go the East Coast? Were there West Coast it, it, uh, It's primarily it? centered in the East Coast. Okay. Um, that's not to suggest that the idea couldn't move through the trade routes and then, and then pass down further or just, you know, developed at the same, you know, at, at a different time by a different people further south. But yeah, it was, it was mostly centered in the, in the Eastern United States. And that's where you find the surviving ones uh, now. Right, and I think it's almost uh, interesting thing to bring up is that what remains today of this of the burial mound, like what symbols do we still have in modern society that may not aesthetically point to it, but certainly in spirit or in form, as it were, connect to this this concept. Sure, you and know? I'd say if you really want to talk about one culture passing on an idea to the next, the pyramids of Egypt, who have remained. You know, the only uh, wonder of the world to still be standing today. They have survived the test of time. They are large and imposing and, and very impressive. And they have impressed many different foreign conquerors who have come into Egypt over the years. That's a perfect example of one culture being influenced by another, by all these people coming in and taking back this concept and idea surrounding the pyramid and then running with it. And certainly from the Napoleonic era on, it's become really stylish to imitate pyramids because they were in ancient Egypt. You know, that, right. that was the, that was the hot thing. And it's really interesting. You go into, you know, Parisian uh, cemeteries and you look at the graves that date back to around that time in, in the 17 and 1800s. 
you're seeing a heavy, heavy ancient Egyptian influence. You have all these obelisks that have been constructed, which are, you know, for those who don't know, are these uh, pillar-like objects that have a, a small pyramid at the top. Pyramidium is what right. it's known as, um, which were uh, iconic of the of the sun and solar worship in ancient Egypt. Right. And then you have whole tombs constructed like pyramids. Right. For those who don't know what we're talking about, another great example of the obelisk is the Washington Monument. That's a perfect example. In Washington, D.C., um, is a obviously that's more based on um, a symbol from the Freemasons, but um, well, hey, there you go, the Freemasons yeah, absorbing yeah. all of this iconography right. from from ancient Egypt yeah. and, and taking it and assimilating. And I say that's obvious, but then again, it's really not. Obvious. It's really not. It's, it's obvious not. to us because yeah, we're, we're nerds. We're nerds, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like, uh, yeah, well, obviously this well, is that again, the case. The high, um, so, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's so. There's obviously the influence of, of the obelisk, and that's probably the most. I said the obelisk subtle. and the pyramid are, are have just kind of found their way into modern architecture, and you don't have to go any far, further than you know Las Vegas, Nevada, to see <laughs> that for yourself. The Luxor Hotel, right? Sure, which has an inclinator, right? It doesn't have the escalator, right? Exactly, <laughs> a slanted elevator because um, they want it to be, you know, or the cool. Pyramid Arena in, in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, which, you know, it looks exactly like what's what's known as a true pyramid, right, with smooth sides on it. Right. Um, there's also, right in our own backyard, in the, the Transamerica Pyramid in San Francisco. And in my opinion, that looks a lot more like an obelisk than, than a pyramid, but, you know, then you're just kind of getting down to semantics. Can you, point. for maybe our listeners who may not be native to the Bay Area, because we are from Northern California, can you share us a little bit more of this Transamerican uh, Pyramid, just to go into a little more detail what it looks like, how it got there. Because it's, it's modern construction is what you're saying, correct? Uh, yeah, it yeah. is a modern construction. Okay. I Let me, let because I don't have all this information off the top of my head. Here. Okay. Let me pull up a couple of little factoids real quick. Uh, it was built in 1972. Uh, it's uh, 200, or sorry, it's 850 feet tall. So it's actually almost the same size as Khufu's Great Pyramid. Uh, and if I had to describe it, I mean, essentially it is a four-sided object. It's a four-sided building. Uh, that keeps getting narrower as you get up towards the top there. Uh, and it kind of has a little fin, kind of little wings that kind of hang off the side uh, that, are, that are built onto the facade. And um, it's it's probably one of the most iconic skyscrapers on the San Francisco skyline. It's it's very recognizable. If you've ever seen a movie that does a, a pan over of San Francisco, you're going to see it. Uh, and, you know, the same thing with, uh, with the Luxor in Las Vegas. Everybody knows it's there. You know, it, it's these these large iconic representations, and it's funny how you know in America, obviously, we have this this great habit of copying and reproducing and recreating because you know as a country we haven't really been around nearly as long as everybody else has, so we kind of have to see what everyone else is doing and kind of create the bigger, the better, the best thing in the world. Uh, and it's it's kind of neat to see all the different you know in, Egyptian influences kind of uh, been thrown in there. Yeah, definitely. Another major area of the world that, that that is or should be known for its pyramid building and isn't, isn't really uh, and that's china right and right. you know there's a lot of folks who, who who don't even really connect those two words together pyramid in china just doesn't make any sense to them but there are actually several examples of of chinese pyramids uh most of which date to just around the second century bce and again they come back down to mound architecture and these mausoleums that have been constructed and built within them uh, and most of them you could walk right by and you wouldn't really even notice as, as being a pyramid just because 
uh, it, it's now you know very much covered with earth and, and trees and doesn't really look exactly like what you would think a pyramid would be. But some of the the greatest examples of terracotta pottery and beautiful examples of, of Chinese history have been preserved within them. Uh, and people just assume, well, okay, they were they were held somewhere. Nobody ever asked where, but they were held in pyramids. Uh, and there are other areas in Southeast Asia that are also home to pyramids. Java, for example. Uh, you see a lot of architecture from the first, or sorry, from the, about 1000, you know, CE that um, is all very much uh, reminiscent of, of what you would assume a pyramid would kind of look like as well. I mean, there's a lot of different pyramids out there in the world. And I just felt like I had to at least throw those out there real quick, just because. Sure. They're sure. beautiful and they're important and they're 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 an amazing part of, of human history and culture. And I don't want to make, a, I don't want to leave anyone out. I want to make sure everybody <laughs> is included yeah, we in, don't want to sound in today's like pyramid conversation. Over one yeah. civilization over, over another. And you know, when you say this, I need to see what you're talking about. So because I'm at the computer here, I want to, I'm just Googling uh, Chinese pyramids to kind of get a sense for what they look like. Okay, and, yeah. And you're right. They do look very unassuming. Some you would just mistake for a hillside. Um, but some of them, not so much. Like, they have very much the um, the triangular design uh, to them. The ones that we, we all know very, very well. But um, it's amazing that we, we never would think about the Chinese building pyramids. Our perception is what we saw when we started working with them when they were uh, still an imperialized nation where like sure. they have very ornate pagoda like you yeah. know buildings and let's face it it's it's the big stuff that stands out in our, in our memories right right if you say great wall what's the next thing that pops into your mind china of course exactly right because it is the most iconic representation of of architecture in china mm-hmm. it's very large it's very imposing everybody knows it you can see it from space so of course that's going to stand out and when you think of the word pyramid obviously your mind pulls you to places like egypt because that's where the iconic representation that's where the big ones are that's where your attention is drawn to and it's kind of a double-edged sword because yeah it's great you know it, it you know people are paying attention to it but what about all the other stuff that influences it all the other things that that you know created that people forget about that that makes me sad yeah i, I like the underdog stuff I, I, I'm, I, I'm kind of a supporter of the underdog i like the the simple right. burial mounds and i guess it just goes to show that like the uh whoever wrote the script for uh the movie the film prometheus really like they really did put a lot of thought into the, that small what seemed to be like an overlooked detail, but was really a, a, yeah. a, a major historical. And usually tie-in. anytime I see pyramids in any kind of science fiction film, I, I get nauseated just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, I have a particular issue with people trying to um, detract away from pyramid building being a, a terrestrial thing and making it an extraterrestrial thing. I think that's probably one of my number one pet peeves. Oh, it's the, the theory that the the aliens taught us how to build pyramids, which is a very and you know paranormal. I have to, I have to acknowledge it's a theory based on my previous comments that I made about levels of, of probability. Right. Uh, <laughs> I kind of want to go somewhere else with that beyond the word theory. Yeah. Uh, garbage kind of comes to mind. <laughs> um, and it's not that I don't. Well, and it, you, you know it. what? I, I shouldn't say it. Everyone is allowed to have their opinion, and there are some people who believe very strongly in this and you know what power to you if it doesn't hurt anyone you can believe whatever you want i don't care but to me it's actually 
evolved into the most unassuming and totally surprising form of racism I think you could find anywhere. Now, and then this is interesting. Now, it's funny because you're saying this, and actually the fact is that the Prometheus film very much plays into this notion that we got all of our knowledge from a, a higher, more terrestrial-looking version of humans that came from another world. At yeah, least that's the theory. am I turning green yet? No, you're not turning okay, green. Okay, good. good. No, I, I don't want to throw up on the mic. So no, no, just, no. Okay, I, I, right. I will leave you there. But you bring, up, <laughs> you bring up racism with this, and I'm like... Okay, well, all right. Maybe that's a pretty strong word to be using. Prejudice, but I, maybe. Is prejudice is probably better. I feel very strongly about it, though. Okay. So I think that's kind of where that came from. Okay. Um, let me kind of explain that a little further, then. Because one, one big thing, I, one big issue I have is people... And I'm just going to throw it out there. People from, from Western Europe, when they came into places like Egypt, looked at the pyramids and then looked down on the people that they were conquering and thought, well, these people couldn't have possibly built it. They're unsophisticated. They're savages. They don't know anything about, you know, the modern world, which was, in their view, the Western world. And as such, they created all sorts of interesting ideas about how the ancient Egyptians could have gotten help for building these pyramids, including Atlantis. And it's, uh, you know, grandfather of the Atlantean theory, good old Herodotus, who who likes to talk about it in his annals of history, um, which he had, of course, no real information to support any of these. This is all passed down to him, and most of it was probably created just for, you know, the publicity of it all. Um, and it immediately took away from the ancient Egyptians from being the builders of the pyramids. There had to have been somebody else to influence them. And, well, you know, you say that, and th- this ties into a much bigger episode, but it feels like that is kind of the MO for Western Europe going to any civilization. It's not sure. just Egypt. They did it with North America. Yeah, they did they... it with pretty much anywhere. They did it with their own people, right. actually. They did it with the other white people, too. And this the same concept and idea is still living and is still strong in this whole aliens-built everything ancient man did you know it's it's taking away and subtracting away from the actual achievements of these very intelligent very coordinated people who are who are our ancestors why should we devalue the work that our ancestors did you know it really bothers me i think we really underestimate the ingenuity of the human mind even that bar as far back as five six thousand years ago when we when we perceive of civilization is truly beginning when we're talking about ancient Egypt and we're talking about the Greeks to a degree and um, ancient Mesopotamians. But really, we're a clever lot, we yeah. humans. <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm going to up the ante on you. Yeah. I'm going to throw another hominid in there, yeah. the one that we coexisted with just up until pretty recently uh, in history, Neanderthals. Right. And they, they are considered the idiots of uh, the world by the by the ignorant exactly but they actually they're they're believed actually they're even may have been more intelligent than we were oh yeah some of the first examples of ceremonial burial while we're on the topic hey uh come to us from neanderthals and that just you know when that was discovered you know when a lot of these theories started developing in the 1970s and 1980s when we kind of reimagined what the neanderthal was it was really uh an eye-opener and because before that, we had the, the atypical Fred Flintstone, you know, or not Fred Flintstone, but the, you know, the, the caveman with the club banging on the head and all that right. kind of stuff. We had yeah. the, this, this simple primitive idea of what, what ancient people were like, uh, Stone Age people were like, and that has changed so dramatically. Uh, and it's a perfect example of just how clever we really are and why we didn't need aliens to help us do anything. Yeah, it's true. I, I agree. The ability for us to have abstract thought will always push us to think in ways we haven't thought of before, whether it's something as simple as hunting and gathering, 
because eventually someone said oh wait a second why do we have to hunt for food we can grow food yeah and someone was crazy enough to try it and it worked and to make a long story very very short here we are today yeah so <laughs> <laughs> um yeah you know this has been great this has uh, been really fun for our first episode I yeah agree. this is great i there's got a lot more to come uh you know and this is kind of why we're doing this because right. it, it it is fun and it's great to talk about these things. And we hope that people out there who are listening learn something new, learn something, and you know, something they didn't know before, something that would make them want to go out and get on the internet, go get a book. I know these things called books exist even still today. I know they're bound and they have paper and they're kind of weird and, you know, don't get them wet or anything. But, um, you know, you can find so much great and interesting things out there to read about and learn about. Do it. I know for me, I, I go on Wikipedia binges all the time, and I some people will say, well, why are you looking at Wikipedia? I look at cited articles, to be record for the record, <laughs> which most of the historical information on Wikipedia is cited by a professional who knows really what they're talking about. Um, and But it's still fun. It's still an exposure, and there's so many links you can follow that you get lost in this uh, tempest, so to speak, of... Uh, of information. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of great reading suggestions from just following the references. You exactly. Know, going to the link, getting it on Amazon, you know, downloading it through through whatever e-reader you prefer. It's a great way to kind of pick up on a, you know, right. some material that's out there. Um, so that is it for our first episode of Nerds on History. You can follow us on Twitter at uh, Nerdonomy, and you can also find us on nerdonomy.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. No, seriously, you guys should do an episode on the history of gastropubs. Um, no. <laughs>